the National Archives podcast series, England and Scotland at War, 1296 to 1513, sources at the National Archives, presented by Dr. Sean Cunningham. I'm probably going to highlight some of the material in the collection here within a general outline of how the wars unfolded. I won't say much about the mechanics and the tactics of the armies since that detail is in an earlier podcast that's on the website on medieval warfare. So we're beginning an important period of commemoration in the history of Anglo-Scottish relations. In the next two years, two major anniversaries will occur. September 2013 will be the 500th anniversary of the Battle of Flodden, a disaster for Scotland where King James IV and many of the country's most experienced politicians and landholders were killed. 2014 will also be the 700th year since the Battle of Bannockburn, a disaster for the English that helped cement Scottish independence and nationhood. And how these anniversaries are commemorated will tell us a great deal about how each nation views the history and importance of its interaction with the other. Not surprisingly, early indications suggest that Flodden will receive little national coverage in Scotland and might well be sidelined in the enthusiastic build-up to the Bannockburn anniversary, even though Flodden was a far more significant single event than Bannockburn. The English national view of Flodden is far harder to gauge, simply because it's a historical event without much resonance away from the border. And this is a key point. National Scottish awareness of the medieval struggle with the English is so strongly established because it was the crucial period in the emergence of Scotland's independent identity. And for that reason, it's not really surprising that the medieval Scottish resistance to medieval English claims, threats and attempts to dominate north of the border has become such a powerful totem in current Scottish politics and the growing debate about the cohesion of the modern British state. Many English people those that are interested at least, are regularly surprised by the passionate knowledge of the Scots about this period of British history, and by the way that it echoes within current Scottish and British politics. The recent media and political campaign surrounding a French letter of recommendation for William Wallace indicates this very well. So this letter was written in November 1300 by the French government for French officials in Rome. It recommended that they support Wallace's cause at the papal court as a representative of the Scottish cause for independence. Because the document might have been carried by Wallace and could perhaps have come into English hands at his arrest in 1305, it has generated an amazing level of attention, almost as a relic of Wallace, the national hero. And the document is now to go on long-term loan to Edinburgh following an online petition, two seminars at which Scottish, English and French historians and archivists discussed the language, form and context of the document in exhaustive detail, and considerable interest from the Holyrood government itself. With such attention in Scotland, given to one document, and very little parallel interest within England, it's perhaps no coincidence that the Scottish independence referendum vote will occur in 2014, a few weeks after the 700th anniversary of Bannockburn. So awareness of the detail or significance of Flodden or Bannockburn among the English is far harder to identify, and it's certainly now clouded by what we might call the Braveheart factor. That is, the generalising and obscuring of what we do know about the medieval Anglo-Scottish conflict behind its presentation as popular entertainment. This is a debate that's ongoing on website forums and newspaper columns and history societies all over the country, and I'm going to leave them to it. But what is clear is that England, in England, the continuing awareness of cross-border wars remains primarily a particularly regional concern that's rooted in the border towns and villages of Cumbria and Northumberland. A case in point is a current Heritage Lottery Fund grant to cross-border consortium of archivists, historians, schools and landholders to create a definitive regional resource on Flodden. And this will build on existing, more solemn commemorative material 
to explore the impact of a massive battle in a rural border community. And the fact that it is the border region that still feels the legacy of Flodden and many of the other major battles of the wars uh, that maintains the complexity of the relationship of the English frontier to the centre of government 350 miles away. And in this sense, modern understanding and reflection on the Anglo-Scottish wars mirrors the way that the conflict was viewed in medieval times. That is why three, the centuries-old events, individuals and behaviour are still important within Britain today. So three centuries of Anglo-Scottish war emerged from the policies of Edward I. His claim to dominate Scotland and the methods by which he tried to achieve his intention were repeated by subsequent English medieval kings as the period 1296-1307 laid the foundations for Anglo-Scottish relations until the union of the crowns in 1603. Between 1296 and 1327, England and Scotland were almost permanently at war. The peace treaty that defined Scottish nationhood of Edinburgh Northampton in 1328 brought little actual peace as the war re was renewed under Edward III and David II in the 1330s and it was not until the Treaty of Berwick in 1357 ending the so-called Second War of Independence that some political stability was established. This agreement tacitly acknowledged the Bruce family of Scottish monarchs, since the English could not demand a clause that mentioned Edward III's overlordship of Scotland. This process had taken over 60 years of regular warfare, but was not the end of the story. So when Edward I inherited the crown in 1272, relations with Scotland were relatively cordial. His sister Margaret was Queen of Scots, as wife of Alexander III, and in 1278 Alexander had given homage to Edward for his lands in England, um, as Edward was to do for the lands he held in France in 1284. But when the Scottish king died unexpectedly in 1286, his only heir was his young granddaughter, Margaret of Norway. And a planned marriage to Edward's eldest son would have united the, the two crowns, sorry, even though Scotland's independence as a kingdom was to continue, as happened between 1603 and 1707. Nevertheless, Edward clearly expected to exploit the marriage and exert influence north of the border. Picture of Margaret travelling in her boat from Norway. But when she died on this journey in 1290, the rule of the kingdom passed to a body of guardians, while the right to the crown became a matter of dispute between 13 claimants. And Edward I asserted his overlordship to appoint himself arbiter between the leading candidates, Robert Bruce, Lord of Annandale, and John Balliol. The Scottish claimants rejected his right to do so, and it was only after a prolonged meeting on the border in the early summer of 1291 that the English king was accepted as the right man to pass judgment. And it took until November the following year for Edward styling himself Lord Paramount of Scotland to declare at Berwick that Balliol was the right candidate with the strongest case. Having exercised the right to decide the crown, Edward was determined to exert further dominance over Scotland, with Balliol as a feudal inferior. Edward claimed authority over the Scottish king in disputes brought by Scotsmen, and soon demanded payments for the defence of England in the war with France. Balliol acknowledged Edward's position by accepting a summons to the English Parliament in 1293 to determine a Scottish case brought the son of the Earl of Fife. The following year, Edward demanded that the King of Scots and 18 of his noblemen perform war service against the French and Edward's actions forced the Scots into resistance. Balliol was effectively deposed, and another council of guardians took over the reins of power in July 1295. Their first action, early in 1296, was to seek an alliance with the French. Edward's war with France had broken out in 1294 over the lordship of Gascony, and Edward's strategy involved complex alliances with northern European princes to pressurise the French in the north, as well as through English intervention in the southwest of France. And it's not surprising, therefore, that the French saw the position of the Scots as something they could also exploit to force Edward I towards a war on three fronts. And it was this Franco-Scottish friendship and England's continuing claim to feudal overlordship in Scotland that locked the three nations into a cycle of conflict that was to last for three centuries. Edward used the French alliance and John Balliol's refusal to travel to England in 1296 as a pretext for war. 
After Balliol renounced his homage and raided into Cumberland, Edward immediately invaded Scotland, capturing Berwick after a very bloody attack that destroyed most of the town and its inhabitants. An English attempt to take the castle of Dunbar in April brought the defeat and capture of many Scottish nobles and knights, and Edward was able to march on into Edinburgh and even into central and northern Scotland in pursuit of Balliol, reputedly capturing Stirling Castle from a single janitor left behind to hand the keys to the English. Once he had surrendered, Balliol had the symbols of royalty ripped from his clothes near Montrose in July 1296. He was then sent to imprisonment in London and eventually exile in France. With Balliol deposed, Edward demonstrated his supremacy by removing government documents and the Scottish coronation stone from Schoon, and it was not returned to Edinburgh until November 1996. Edward then inserted leading Englishmen into Scottish government. John de Warren, 6th Earl of Surrey, became Warden of the Kingdom and Land of Scotland, but he clearly did not enjoy being so far away from home. And during one of his absences in 1297, a popular rising broke out in which Robert Bruce grandson of Balian's rival claimant in 1292, Andrew Moray, and the knight William Wallace were prominent. With Edward fighting in Flanders, it was left to Warren reluctantly to head north once again. His defeat to Wallace at the Battle of Stirling Bridge on the 11th of September 1297 shows that the focus of the English on the allegiance of Scottish nobles had perhaps underestimated the determination of the wider majority of Scots to resist. And although the numbers involved were relatively small... The ferocity of the fighting in which Edward's treasurer in Scotland, Sir Hugh Cressingham, was reported to have had his skin cut into pieces for distribution as battle trophies suggests something of the fervour that Wallace had instilled in his followers. Wallace then went on the offensive with a raid into England. This setback was enough to bring Edward back from Flanders and he began preparations for a major summer invasion in 1298, which he intended to lead in person. To gain cooperation of his nobles in the face of heavy demands for war service, Edward was obliged to reissue Magna Carta and the Charter of the Forest so he was taking the Scottish war very seriously. Edward's command of the English army at Falkirk on the 22nd of July 1298 was his first battlefield command since 1265, and at the age of 59, this was a serious undertaking for the English king. The tactics he used with his Welsh bowmen and English archers, picking off the Scottish Shiltrum formations of densely packed long spears um, set up to defend against cavalry, shows innovation uh, in tactic. And although Edward's invading force might have involved as many as 30,000 troops, the English could not occupy and control areas beyond those castles and towns that they'd captured. So the real method of progress was through negotiation and political compromise with the Guardians. The Scots responded with some new tactics after 1300 to avoid pitch battles, concentrating on small raids, and that left the English using up soldiers and money in garrison and defensive operations. And clashes were small-scale, like the winter fight at Rosslyn in February 1303. That did much to enhance one of the Guardians, John Cumming, his reputation, and was embellished by later Scottish writers. So I'm going to have a little pause here just to talk a little bit about the kind of things you're seeing on here. shows you the state of a lot of these records and, and what historians have to face when they're pulling information together. So TNA holds an enormous amount of, of letters, accounts, licences, grants and enrolments that show how the English armies and occupying forces were assembled and operated. Um, chronicle sources, which is what the basic narrative is pulled from, provide those sort of details on events. But it's really the more routine medieval private and crown evidence of business, government business and private business, that can add depth or confirm or deny the opinions of contemporary writers. TNA possesses very little of the former, but an abundance of administrative, financial and legal documents, and is certainly one of the best preserved pre-industrial state archives in the world. Of course, one of the major burdens for medieval historians is that this material has to be mined and gathered together from scattered locations. 
especially when physical condition language and, and handwriting is considered. But this is how the stories of the past are sort of tested and given authenticity and how they become reliable as history rather than hearsay and myth, which does surround some of this period of history quite intensively. So when Bruce changed sides in the winter of 1301 to 2, many other nobles gradually followed him into Edward's service. Crucial also was Edward's peace treaty with France, which was sealed at Paris in May 1303, from which the English worked very hard to exclude the Scots. Edward negotiated separately with the Guardians and insisted on Scottish help to bring about the capture of Wallace. And when this occurred in 1305, Edward I seemed to have gained the upper hand in stifling Scottish resistance. Plans were agreed in the first joint English-Scottish Parliament for a new form of government in Scotland, now described as a land and not a kingdom. Scottish laws and border customs were to be forbidden as they were, quote, clearly displeasing to God and to reason, unquote, i.e. they were emphasising to Edward that Scotland was a separate sovereign kingdom rather than an addition to his own feudal territories. So these laws included cross-border legal tribunals that had preserved border law before the national war had demolished the structures that kept the frontier functioning. And undermining these structures of Scottish government and in denying the independence and after Balliol's deposition, even the existence of the Scottish crown were essential to Edward's plans to dominate Scotland. Edward was reluctant to grant English-held land to his supporters and offered unconquered Scottish areas as incentives. This might have been one contributing factor in Bruce again changing sides. Another was that Bruce had to act against his main aristocratic opponent, that was John Cummin, to have any chance of asserting his claim among the guardians of Scotland to sole rule. So Bruce took a desperate step when he murdered Cummin in Dumfries Church in February 1306. He then claimed the Scottish throne directly and was crowned at Schoon on the 25th of March. And this initiated a further civil conflict between Bruce on the one hand and the supporters of Cummin and the exiled King John on the other. Edward I was taken by surprise by this. He confiscated Bruce's lands in England and sent Aymer de Valence, who was Cummin's brother-in-law, and the rising star of the borderlands, Henry Lord Percy, to destroy Bruce. And they nearly achieved this at the Battle of Methven in June, when the Scots were overrun in a night attack. But Bruce had escaped the English and was in, uh, and it disappears from the record really, perhaps overseas during the winter of 1306-7. He returned that spring as the ageing Edward I came north for the final time. And from that point onwards, until the victory at Bannockburn in 1314, Bruce's cause gained momentum. The death of Edward I on the Cumbrian coast in July 1307 certainly helped the Scots, and hesitation by Edward II allowed Bruce to focus on ending his civil war with Cummins' followers. In 1308, Bruce raided northern England and soon received the backing of the Scottish clergy. The English began to be pushed out of their garrisons and the occupied lands in southern Scotland, and this was done by adapting Wallace's guerrilla warfare tactics and by infiltrating castles rather than besieging them and avoiding pitched battles, of course. The exception to this was Bannockburn in June 1314, when Bruce brilliantly defeated a larger Scottish to English army attempting to raise the siege of Stirling. And Bannockburn obviously strengthened Bruce's position as king, and from that point he was able to reward his own supporters more consistently and secured oaths of loyalty from others. He then took the war into England. He captured Berwick in April 1318 and savage raids as far as Byland and Revo Abbey in North Yorkshire, which forced a truce with England in December 1319. But Bruce's right to be king was not recognised by Edward II, however, and further Scottish devastation of Northern England maintained the pressure on Edward II, who was also dealing with his own noble rivals to negotiate. And in April 1320, the Scots also launched a diplomatic mission to Pope John XXII to uphold Scottish independence. Uh, and this resulted in the, um, the Declaration of Arbroath. 
but Bruce wasn't recognised by the Pope until 1324. And Scottish raids and negotiations continued, but England would not give up the claim to dominance of Scotland. And the old alliance with France was renewed by a treaty in April 1326. And only the deposition of Edward II in September 1327, accession of his underage son, a further raiding by the Scots, forced the English to recognise Scottish independence and Bruce's kingship in 1328. And part of this settlement was a marriage between Bruce's heir David and Edward II's daughter Joan. The union that warfare could not achieve was to be brought about by marriage, although many previous cross-border noble marriages and many subsequent ones did little to stem the bloodshed. And this theme recurred in the 1470s and in 1503. So on his death in June 1329, Bruce passed the succession to his heir David. But since he too was underage, a regency was established under the Guardians. Naturally, this led to renewed conflict, as Edward III, after 1332, promoted the rival claims of the, to the Scottish crown of Edward, son of King John Balliol. Victory of these Scottish rebels and English armies at Dublin Moor in 1332 forced David into exile in France and gained Balliol the Scottish crown. But without real support, he had to flee the country quickly, and he sought Edward III's direct help. So a further Balliol victory at Halidon Hill, near Berwick, in 1333, again killed many of the Scottish aristocratic opponents of Balliol, and his restoration to the throne alienated other survivors even more. And Balliol then did homage to Edward III for himself and his kingdom, and seemed to undo much of the work of Robert I in securing Scottish independence. The civil war continued against Scotland's guardians, and the English remained heavily committed as military backers of Balliol's weak kingship. The period also involved the French more directly in Scotland, as Edward III's wars with France and David II's exile made Scotland a key component in the balance of power fluctuating war. French support for Balliol's opponents eroded his authority, and he was deposed again. David II returned to Scotland as soon as he turned 18 in 1341, but an ill-judged raid towards Durham resulted in his capture at the Battle of Neville's Cross in 1346, and he was imprisoned for 11 years after that in the Tower of London. So Edward III's focus on his war with France and Balliol's ineffectiveness emphasised to the English that war with Scotland was costly, dangerous, relatively inglorious when compared to the Continental War, and ultimately fruitless, since things didn't seem to be progressing. The Treaty of Berwick in 1357 recognised this reality and brought a ten-year truce, which held very well to become a period of uneasy peace. And this lasted with frequent interruptions until 1482. And this agreement also ended the sustained period of English claims to the overlordship of Scotland. So I hope you'll forgive me for this very quick race through the events of the Wars of Independence. But it does draw out the main pattern of English intervention in support of royal claimants they hoped to dominate, and Scottish resistance through guardians determined to retain independence and to have it recognised internationally. The length and destructiveness of the wars on this basis was staggering, and it's little wonder, then, that both sides were willing to end the attrition and negotiate a settlement in 1357. As the basis of national confrontation changed, so the border region began to emerge from the disaster of decades of war and reclaim something of its 13th century identity and customs. Strong leaders like William Douglas of Liddlesdale and the Percy family developed their local connections and ensured that a system of frontier government could function. And it was redevelopment of this cross-border community, as it was redeveloped rather, that came to hold a different view of the Anglo-Scottish conflict to that of the two crown governments. And this in turn bred a more pragmatic attitude towards the subjects of the opposing state, as cross-border feuding and low-level local warfare often sidestepped national policy objectives. Both crowns came to rely on the influence of these local lords as marcher wardens to blend self-interest with the bigger picture, 
which is obviously still directly linked to the wars between England and France and Scotland. We have a far stronger picture of the border reaving clans as, quote, English at their will and Scottish at their pleasure from the 16th century records in the border papers here at the National Archives. But it is apparent much earlier and takes on a more familiar form in the sort of frontier life that developed under the Percys or the Douglases in the 14th century. And it's the influence of such local magnets that determined whether the border and its inhabitants would disrupt and stifle or support the distant king and his policies. The border battles of Otterburn in 1388, Humbleton Hill and Nesbitt Moor 1402, resulted from large-scale raids by these leaders. And these conflicts were relatively self-contained within border resources and were rarely exploited by either crown. On the English side, the alignment of many families with the Percys also dragged the borderers into the Wars of the Roses, as descendants of Edward III fought for the crown in the 15th century. After the 1403 rebellion against Henry IV of Henry Hotspur Percy, the son of the first Earl of Northumberland, the Earl himself fled into Scotland, forfeited his lands and found his tenants heavily fined. And when Percy was killed at Bramham Moor in Yorkshire in another rebellion in 1408, the men of Tyndale and Reedsdale began to agitate for a restoration of their natural border leaders. So under cover of this campaign, we see a rise in the clans promoting a swathe of robberies, burnings, revenge murders and abductions, and often in collusion with their national enemies. And these were denounced in Henry V's first parliament in 1414. The crown's solution was to try to contain the violence within the border liberties and deal with it under strict marcher law. This strengthened the structure of the border, heightened the administration, but it also helped to identify the frontier zone as an area that existed between both kingdoms without being completely part of either. And as the border became the only peacetime militarised zone within England, the frontier lords also gained a reputation for violence as well as real skill in arms. Men such as Sir William Tailboys, who was effectively Lord of Reedsdale, between 1444 and 64, exploited insider knowledge of the conditions on the border to the point where he became notorious as a robber, ravisher and extortioner. And his close association with the Percy family placed him and many other borderers on the ruling Lancastrian side when the Wars of the Roses kicked off for real in 1455. When the, the rival claimant Edward Duke of York took the crown as Edward IV in 1461, such men were viewed as particularly partisan and inherently suspect that they had not stood in the way of the Lancastrians returning Berwick to Scotland in 1461 and hoped to exploit their position as intermediaries between Westminster and the border region. This was largely ignored by Edward IV as he hunted them down in the 1460s uh, and crushed them all at the battles of Hexham and Hedgley Moor in 1464. This then allowed the crown in England to promote the Neville family into the rule of the far north and to reshape the loyalty of the whole region. And this was largely successful. The borders were involved in the risings that temporarily deposed Edward IV in 1470, but the Scots did little to exploit the situation in England. Uh, sorry, the Scots had little time to assist the nine-month-long second reign of the Lancastrian Henry VI before he too was again removed and killed by Edward in May 1471. So James III's policy under Edward was surprisingly to reposition Scotland slightly and encourage peace with England. Maybe this is a sign that after centuries of warfare it was time for a different approach and the way this was done was again through marriage agreements between several members of the two royal families. This alienated the border earls in Scotland who had been especially responsible from their own pocket for maintaining the frontier and their authority relied on national confrontation as well as control over the borderers. But the sense that Edward's policy was working is shown by the fact that the Scots didn't act against England when Edward IV invaded France in 1475, and the border government contained the issues that did arise 
over border law and violence. And this was unusual since earlier history of the old alliance between Scotland and France had shown that the Scottish threats normally coincided with English military activity in France or the Low Countries, what Edward Hall called in his chronicle in 1548 the old pranks of the Scots, which is ever to invade England when the king is out. But when James III's pro-English policy collapsed in 1479, the Scots could offer little resistance to an invading English army intent on replacing the king with his brother Alexander, Duke of Albany, who agreed again to English overlordship of Scotland if Edward IV would help him to gain the crown. Edward passed control of this campaign in the summer of 1482 to his brother Richard, Duke of Gloucester, later Richard III, of course. And although Berwick was recovered and Edward's army showed innovation here in naval strategy with licensed privateers attacking Scottish ships, or as in here in the recruitment of very large numbers of northern European mercenaries, mainly coming out of the Burgundian Wars with France, or in this case actually rewarding the, the borderers specifically for their action, or even in lines of communication. Here we know the names of um, a system of Pony Express riders carrying messages between Berwick and London. So there's quite a lot of thought gone into this campaign. Unfortunately, it wasn't possible for the English to force a decisive defeat on the Scots. James III was removed from the frontier and imprisoned by his own nobles in Edinburgh Castle. So when Gloucester turned up, he'd all but exhausted his money and the time he was ar- his army was contracted to serve. And he could not negotiate with anyone who could guarantee a lasting settlement. So in August 1482, he returned south and left the war unfinished. Richard did muster another northern army when he was king in 1484, but this campaign against the Scots was abandoned when his son, the Prince of Wales, died suddenly. The Scots also threatened the border when the English crown changed hands again in August 1485, but again did not invade. The next phase of Anglo-Scottish warfare continued in this cycle, but the next particular phase arose in unusual circumstances. When Richard III seized power in 1483, his nephews, the princes in the tower, disappeared And this gave the new Tudor king, Henry VII, an uncertain foundation for his kingship. If the princes turned out to be alive, most of the people who supported Henry VII to get him to the throne would have abandoned him. And his enemies soon realised this, and a young man called Perkin Warbeck, who history might or might not have identified as Richard, Duke of York, the youngest of the princes in the tower, suddenly appeared in 1491 around Europe and was presented as a a legitimate prince smuggled from the Tower of London in 1483. And in Scotland, King James IV saw support for this conspiracy as a route to gain more influence for Scotland within European politics. Although he too had failed to act against England's border when Henry VII tried another invasion of France in 1492, which was just as unsuccessful as Edward IV in 1475, James's refusal to hand over his protégé Warbeck heightened tension between the countries once again. And a large-scale Scottish raid in 1496 brought a response from Henry VII the following year. And really the scale of this is very similar to Edward I's campaign uh, towards Falkirk in 1298. A massive army of up to 30,000 men was assembled, which Henry intended to lead in person. Unfortunately, in his enthusiasm to build up this military machine, the demands for war funds increased levels of taxation to such a level that the inhabitants of the southwest of England rebelled rather than continue to pay towards an army to be unleashed hundreds of miles away. No sense of national identity here. So in 1497, Henry had to divide his forces to deal with the crisis and narrowly kept his crown at the Battle of Blackheath that summer. Further north, and in similar circumstances to 1482, the king's lieutenant, now Thomas Howard, Earl of Surrey, who'd spent a decade in the north as, as the king's lieutenant, found that his campaign ground to a halt as he was unable to keep his army in the field 
during summer weather that's been very similar to ours in 2012. So reached a settlement with James IV at Ayton, and the subsequent peace treaty promised the marriage of the Scottish king to Henry's eldest daughter, Margaret. And this occurred after a period of consolidation on the border in 1503. In 1497, King James had challenged Surrey to single combat as a way to resolve the war quickly. Surrey was bound to refuse since he was not of appropriate rank. But the two men were to meet on the border in similar circumstances in September 1513. By then, James's position had hardened and he had activated the old alliance with France once again in an agreement to attack, Engl- to attack England once Henry VIII had plans to take an army across the Channel put those into effect. The English king had revived English claims to dominate Scotland once more. And this is a point that must have rankled after more than a century of tacit English acknowledgement of Scottish independence. And once again, it was an unresolved murder and an incident on the border when the Scottish marcher warden Robert Carr was, was murdered, which hadn't been sorted out since 1508. That became a pretext for the war. But the death of James and virtually all of his nobles at Flodden was a complete disaster for Scotland. The country was again left with an underage king and an uncertain political future. And this time the English failed to exploit the situation and the prospect of war re-emerged very quickly as Henry VIII, much like Edward III, continued his war with France and that drew in Scotland as allies. Henry VIII's attempts to use the status of his sister Margaret as Scottish Queen and effective regent for James V to annex Scotland to the English state again achieved little other than a return to the ancient counterbalancing between French and Scottish Old Alliance and England's ambitions to dominate her northern neighbour. And it's remarkable that when Henry VIII was posturing over the occupation of Boulogne and the war with Scotland in 1544, it was very much part of a very familiar-looking diplomatic web that would not have surprised Edward I in 1296. From this time, you can see from this letter in state papers, the English attitude to Scotland hadn't really progressed too much. So at the start of Henry VIII's reign, things seemed to have changed very little in 300 years. Indeed, they might have been going backwards had that king not overreached himself in his ambitions to dominate Britain. So it's just over 300 years since the union of the English and Scottish crown in 1707, and the debates over the state of this union will soon reach a new level with the upcoming Scottish vote on independence. The 300-year Scottish struggle to vanquish the English crown's claims to overlordship before that point, which was achieved by 1603, should remind us that whatever happens in 2014, it will be part of a very long and sometimes bitter cycle and that the fascinating story will continue however things might change. This podcast was recorded live on the 5th of July 2012 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>